Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Um, glad that you're here. Hope you're excited about being here. I'm always excited. Uh, we, my wife and I pray, and when we pray on Saturday night, uh, when we're eating, uh, we pray, and we always pray about today. <laughs> That's one of the things we include in our prayer. We're in a series about Jesus, from his baptism to his crucifixion, of course, resurrection. I don't know about you, when I, we see that opening, the part that gets me is the nails and the hammer and a crown of thorns. So, we're in this series. Today's topic is Greater Indeed. And before we go any farther, let's pray. Um, pray for Miss Faith. She just couldn't get here this morning. And uh, it's neat. Some of us just don't come. She would love to come if her body would allow her to. So she asked us specifically to pray that she'd be able to, to manage her illness. So, let's do that. Father God, thank you. Joy, a privilege, an honor to be here together for your worship, uh, to love on one another, to pray for one another. We're going to pray for Miss Faith this morning, God. Um, she's been a faithful servant of yours and probably been in church most Sundays in her whole entire life. <laughs> um, and so she misses it, and uh, she's struggling, and we, we just pray that you would give her your sustaining grace. Uh, when she has to miss and uh, provide her strength that she can come. And uh, God, we thank you for her, her life and what she's meant to, to many of us. Most of all, God, we're thankful for your son Jesus, what he's done for us. And uh, we're here to honor him and worship him. Just guide this teaching time, God. We thank you for his life and what he had to teach us. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know. I, since I started going to church, I didn't drop out. Some of you may have been church dropouts. I don't know, at some point in your life. But if you've talked to people that went to church and then dropped out, one of the big reasons I find is this. And let me back up a little bit. Those of us that kind of grown up in church, we love church. <laughs> we love the concept of church. We love getting together, and we love the teachings, and we love all that stuff. But what happens sometimes is we begin to love, for a better word, the religion more than the people. The way, the way I used to hear it I've said a lot in church was this, love the sinner but hate the sin, which sounds really good. But you know how that gets transferred to an unchurched person? You hate the sinner. That's what they see. That's what they hear. That's what they understand. That's what they feel. And so often... People see that, and so they reject what we love, and we think that we're rejecting Jesus, but they're loving the fact that we tend maybe to love our religion, our faith, our beliefs more than we do people. So again, in this series, we're looking at Jesus and um, just kind of hitting the highlights uh, with this basic theme that Jesus came to do something completely new, brand new, not an add-on to Judaism, his faith, but, but something new. And uh, one week we're going to talk about the new covenant. Another week we're going to talk about the new commandment. Uh, and then, of course, a new movement we call the church, which we're all part of. Last week we touched on something called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this was probably some teachings that Jesus did over and over again. And again, we kind of miss how radical this teaching is. We called it upside down, just the opposite 
even maybe more almost blasphemy to the people that were hearing it. But there was something special about it that got the people's attention and they listened. <clears throat> and one of the things Jesus said six times was this. <clears throat> you've heard it said, you've, it's been written, or basically Moses has given this law to you that says this, but I say. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're putting yourself in opposition to Moses and to the law? That would be, seem like blasphemy. And Jesus says that six times. We looked at, I think, one or two last week. So, I want to do a minute or two of review here. We'll go back to Matthew 5, 17. Jesus didn't want to misunderstand, even though he was saying this stuff that was, seemed almost crazy upside down. He said, don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses, that was basically their Bible, or the writings of the prophets. No, oh, I didn't come to abolish it. I've come to accomplish their purpose or to fulfill it. Now, we kind of miss this, but he's basically saying, I've come to make a change, a big change. And the interesting thing is, I, we talk about it in our small group on Thursday sometimes, most of us don't like change. <laughs> and maybe it's an older person thing, I don't know. Uh, so just the concept of change causes tension. But when you're talking about changing, changing, I like change, uh, changing uh, the tenets of your faith, that, that, that's difficult, isn't it? That's hard to handle. That's hard to swallow. But after Jesus did his teaching, uh, Matthew records that this response or this reaction to the, of the people is this. Next. So he's saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now, that sounds positive. Hopefully it was positive. But again, it would have been really earth-shattering to them. But here's the explanation. For he taught with real authority. There was a certain power. There was a certain power to the truth he was speaking. It it connected with the people that were listening. And it was different. It was unlike the teachings that they heard before. So here's the question. If, If Jesus said that, How much authority did Jesus really have? Did he have the authority to set Moses aside? And so we're going to look at today to set the temple aside and say, hey, that was fine, that was good for its time, but now we're going to do something different. We're going to do something new. So that's what we want to explore this morning. So not long after that, Matthew records this in chapter 12. Interesting exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Many of, the, many of these in the New Testament. About this time, Jesus was walking along with some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some of the heads of wheat and eating them. All right, kind of seems harmless enough, and evidently in that society, that was kind of normal. There weren't, you know, Chick-fil-A's to stop in if you got hungry, right? So uh, evidently it was acceptable. One considered stealing to pick a few heads of grain and eat them if you're hungry. But Jesus was kind of never alone or often not alone. People followed him. Not the people just liked him, but people that didn't like him, like the Pharisees. And they saw this and they protested. Ah, look, gotcha. Your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. All right, harvesting grain on the Sabbath was a no-no. You know, basic Ten of Commandments don't work on the Sabbath. Harvesting grain would be on the Sabbath. Uh, would be a, but was this breaking this law? Were they harvesting grain? 
No, see, this was kind of the, what do we call it, the, the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. And so Jesus said, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's no law that says that. <clears throat> uh, back up, please. <laughs> uh, There's no law that says that. And if you read the rest of the text, he says, you guys uh, and the priest, we would say preachers like me, you guys work on Sunday. You know, people say, I can't come to church because I work on Sunday. I say, I work on Sunday too. Uh, but I'm, you know, obviously here. And then he tells this story. He says, okay, if a sheep falls in a well on the Sabbath, you pull it out, right? And they're all nodding. Hey, of course we do. And so then Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. Heals his hand. And then if you read the next verse, the next verse says this. The Pharisees, the real religious people, the priests, the preachers, started to plan to kill this guy. Now, when you read that, you think, these are the religious leaders? Like, me get some of the pastors together and say, let's go kill this other preacher. It's kind of crazy, but that's exactly what happened. So, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, etc., were putting the law, actually not the law, their interpretation of the law over people. Which brings me to a topic that kind of is a biggie for me. And there's a mistake in your bulletin. I don't know how I did this. So uh, get it out and you have to make a correction. Legalism prioritizes a view over you. I think it's backwards in your bulletin, isn't it? Right? Okay, so make sure you change that because it's really important. Legalism prioritizes a view over you. Now I understand how it happens. What you think you're doing is prioritizing God. Because the law describes your connection with God. So you, you feel like you're, you're legalizing, uh, I mean, you're defending God or supporting God. <clears throat> but anytime we put a concept, a view, a theology above a person, we've made a mistake. And again, this is one of the big reasons, and maybe some of you left church sometime, uh, you were considered a second-class citizen, for example, maybe because you were divorced. Not so much anymore, but 40 years ago, you were in the church, you got divorced, ah, shame on you. Of course, in our culture, it's more like maybe gay or transgender or something like that. Shame on you. We treat you differently. And so people leave the church, or maybe they leave the church because uh, we've treated somebody else they know that way. So legalism... Prioritizes a view over you. So let me summarize it in a, in a bigger way on your outline. I think, yes. When people use the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick, really quick, to remind them they're on the wrong side of God. So when you got the law and you got people, where does Jesus come down? Where does God come down? Comes down with people. Now, Rest, most of the rest of the time this morning, I want to talk about this concept that we started on last week, and it's from Matthew 12, 6. Again, it's hard for us to understand how radical this is. Jesus said this, there is one here, meaning who? <laughs> Him, <laughs> who is even greater than the temple. But no, Jesus, there's nothing greater than the temple. That's where God dwells. That's the center of the universe. That's where, you, if you want to connect with God, that's where you go. So if you threaten the temple, you, don't, you, you threaten your religion, you threaten God, you actually, to, 
to a Jew, you threaten the whole nation. <clears throat> now in 40 AD, <clears throat> something um, uh, happened, and we're going to give you a couple names on the screen. Something happened that, that to a Jew was just unbearable. The emperor, Roman emperor at that time was Caligula. Some of you have probably heard about him, how terrible a person he was. So about 40 AD, so this is about 10 years, less than 10 years after Jesus, he decided he was God, so he was going to get a statue of himself made, it was made, and he shipped it to what we call the Holy Land, and it was going to be placed in the temple. Now again, we, we don't have the concept here, but say there's only one Christian church. Let's use the, it's the church at the Vatican, okay, All right, for a Catholic. And so somebody's saying, okay, I'm a god, I'm the you know, ruler of the world, I'm going to make a statue of myself, and we're going to take any statues, or maybe the cross, the crucifix, outside of the chat church, and pick my statue there. That's kind of the idea here, but not as radical, as blasphemous as this would be. Anyway, Petronius was the governor in Syria. Now, Petronius had the unfortunate task of doing this. Statue got shipped there. You're supposed to go to the port, transport the statue into the, to Jerusalem and into the temple. Now, when the people heard, uh, heard about this, what do you think they did? Now, it's pretty interesting because you think they would, they would have rioted, right? But that's not what they did. And the, uh, the historian Josephus records it this way. The Jewish people threw themselves down upon their faces, stretched out their throats and said, we are ready to die, to be slain. This was a peaceful protest. And it was huge, it was big, it disrupted the economy and so forth. So Petronius is caught between a rock and a hard place at this point, right? Either it's going to be a bloodbath, he's going to have to kill all these Jews, or he's going to have to not do what the emperor tells him to do, which means he'd probably be killed, right? So he comes with this brilliant plan. He says, I'll write a letter to the emperor and ask him what I should do. Then whatever it is, it'd be the emperor's fault. Well, fate would have it, so to speak, that uh, Caligula is assassinated before the letter gets there. And so the problem is resolved. So again, Jesus said, I tell you, next slide, there is one here who is greater than the temple. But again, this is impossible. And a little quick history of the temple. <clears throat> temple was built by Solomon. In 586, the Babylonians came in and destroyed it, carried off the riches, carried off a bunch of the, of the, of the better, best, best people, and they were in captivity for 70 years. So that means like in 516, they came back. And so the Persians at this point says, okay, we know that for your religion you need a temple. But we're not going to let you build this, this glamorous, huge, you know, temple. We're just going to let you build a, a little miniature temple. <laughs> and it's recorded that some people that had seen the original temple saw this one. You know what their response was? The Bible says they wept. It was just a shell of the, of the glory of the original temple. 
So then fast forward to about 20 years before Jesus. Uh, King Herod decides he wants to rebuild the temple. He gets permission. He goes to, jumps all through all the hoops and he starts rebuilding this temple. And it's considered, it's called Herod's Temple. And it was to be built to, to, the, to the glory of the original temple. <clears throat> um, again, we don't really get the concept um, but the temple grounds were 37 acres, all right? Our church property here on this side of the power lines is five acres. So it would be seven times bigger than that. And it was all constructed on a uh, hewn stone foundation. You know, we pave it all, basically say pave the 37 acres. But they didn't pave back then. And the amazing thing about these, these cut stones was this. Some were as large as 11 feet by 16 feet, by 44 feet. 44 feet is about the length of this part of the building. 44 feet, 11 feet would be, I don't know, about under the speakers, and 16 feet would be out from that. That's one stone. 500 tons. It's amazing. It's kind of like the pyramids. How in the world without modern technology do they make these things and move these things? And there's earthquakes in this part of the world. So this is like earthquake quake proof it might rattle and crack a few of them but that 37 acres of stone weren't going to go anywhere were they uh, picture here's a picture of what we think it looked like obviously there's no pictures of it and this is you can't see the whole 37 acres uh, the temple part was supposed to be about 60 feet high that's about four or five times higher than this and so it took them six, no, 80 years to build this thing. So even in Jesus' lifetime, it wasn't finished. <clears throat> so we've got this glorious temple that's being rebuilt during the life of Jesus, pretty much finished probably when Jesus is doing his ministry. And so he has this conversation with his disciples one day. It's recorded in Mark chapter 13. They were leaving the temple, went there to worship. Came, they were leaving. And he says, to, uh, disciples said to Jesus, look, <laughs> Look at these massive stones. We just talked about how massive they were. And these magnificent buildings. Great. Yeah, man. We would do the same thing. We went to visit some great uh, architectural wonder, right? We were talking about, hey, that's huge, how massive. And, of course, this is their center of worship. And then Jesus responds to them. And, again, I don't know how I can emphasize the power of these words. Do you see all these great buildings? Here it is. Not one stone here we left on one another. These 44-foot stones, everyone will be not destroyed by an earthquake. There's a funny word here used, thrown down. So an earthquake couldn't do this. How could this happen? There's only one force in the world at that time that could do this. And that was the Roman Empire. And to a Jew, the end of the temple, on, on the screen, the end of the temple would be the end of the world. Because you can't practice Old Testament Judaism without a temple. You can't do it. So it would be like the end of the world. It would be cataclysmic. I never said that word. So then the passage goes on. 
And Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking down at Jerusalem, opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John asked him privately, asked him a question. Here's the question. Uh, Tell us, tell us, tell us when these things are going to happen. This is mind-boggling to us, seems impossible to us, but you're saying these things are going to happen. When are they going to happen? And what will be the sign? They all will be fulfilled. And you can read later, the rest of that passage, or a longer passage describes this in Luke 21. It talks about it's going to be horrible. You don't want to have a, be a pregnant person. You don't want to have a, be nursing children this time. It's just horrible things are going to happen. Well, it just so happens, <clears throat> 35, 40 years later, some gangs started gra- ga- gathering around in, in uh, Israel, Holy Land, and they won a battle against the Jews. I mean, against the Jews, against the Romans. They won a battle against the Romans. So they got them all excited, and they started, uh, I guess you would call a rebellion. And so the 10th Legion, <laughs> Roman Emperor's Empire, the 10th Legion, is given instructions to obviously take care of this. And so the people were going into Jerusalem for a, a festival time and they, they thought, well, we just keep, the, keep them out so we have less to fight. And the emperor says, no, let as many people go in as they want. And so people, the Jerusalem gets crowded. They see, put a siege around the city so nobody can get out, nobody can get in, no food can get in. He said the food will run out faster and that's exactly what happened. And so, I think it was in August of 70 A.D., the 10th Legion went in, knocked down the wall, destroyed the city, burned the temple, and actually threw down these stones. And here's a picture. There's some of them still there today. (laughs) Leonard, did you see them when you were there? Uh, I think it's out the southwest side. Only way it could happen. And Jesus predicted, and it didn't happen 10,000 years, 1,000 years later, it happened less than 40 years later. Now, what happens on this location is this. In 70 AD, the Muslims are in control, and they build what we call, what's called the Dome of the Rock on this location. Because it's a holy place for them, because this is where Abraham was supposedly, the Jews would say, sacrifice Isaac. Uh, the Muslims would say, sacrifice Ishmael. So it's a holy place for, for both religions. So they build it's destroyed several times by earthquakes and it's rebuilt. In 1099, who knows what happened? Terrible thing for the church. We called it the Crusades. So there's this battle fought to throw the Muslims out of, the, of, of Jerusalem, and they do. And so this Dome of the Rock becomes a church for 88 years. And Saladin bring them, and the Muslims come back in and... and Push the Christians out. And of course the Muslims have been in control of the Dome of the Rock since then. And here's a picture, a modern picture of what that looks like. Um, now, if you're a skeptic like I am, and this drives my wife crazy, when I hear something, my first reaction is not to believe it. I don't know about you. Her reaction is first thing is to believe it. Anyway, I'm a skeptic, so that's, that's true about faith too as well. So this Jesus... <laughs> predicted something was going to happen 35 or 40 years later to the T 
that the stones wouldn't be destroyed by an earthquake, but they would be thrown down, humanly thrown down. How can I resist that? How can I still be skeptical of that? And kind of support that idea. If the Gospels, now here's, I don't know what complaints you hear, but people say, oh, the Gospels were written 100 years later, so it's just fairy tales. People are making this stuff up. All right? All right. Here's a great proof that that's not what happened. They were literally written at least before 70 A.D. Because if they're written after 70 A.D., what would the writers have included? And I put this, put this up on the screen. If this was written in 80 A.D. or 90 A.D. or 100, how could they resist putting this in there? And so it came about just as Jesus said it would. Because we've got proof it happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. So here's the reason. Next three screens, please. When Mark was written, the temple was still standing. Right? When Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. And when Luke was written, the temple was still standing. Our conclusion is this. Next slide. Because it didn't happen yet. And if something's written 20 years after the fact... It can't be fairy tale. It can't be made up because there's all kinds of people around that can say, no, <laughs> that's not true. That didn't happen. I was here. I saw it. I lived through it. But it still happened just as Jesus said it would. Again, if you can predict something that accurately, and of course the biggest thing about Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, how can you not follow that person? Again, not one stone here, next slide, will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now he's foreshadowing the replacement of this old way because he knew in 30 or 40 years the temple's going to be gone and Judaism for all intents and purposes was over. It was replacing with something new, better, different. Then, sometime later, after Jesus, of course, Paul, we talk about Paul a lot, he's writing something. We often miss the, the impact of this passage because we don't think about the temple the way the Jews would think about the temple. And he was a Jew. Uh, he was a Pharisee. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says this. Paul writes this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple? Now, there was this temple. Well, at the time when he wrote this, it was still the temple. It was still there. So there's this temple in Jerusalem where Jews say, this is the center of, what, uh, of worship, and this is where God dwells, and this is where you connect with God. But no, 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 it's different now. Don't you realize that now your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? We say it this way sometimes. God has left the building. God wasn't any more in the temple than he was any place else. He says, who, meaning the Holy Spirit, lives in you and was given to you by God. Don't you realize that? Your bodies are temples. They are holy things that dwell, the, uh, the Holy Spirit dwells in. That's what makes it holy. And then he says, you do not belong to yourself. Do we really believe that? 
Do we really believe that our, our bodies are their temple and we don't belong to ourselves? We would take a lot better care of these bodies if we truly believed it, wouldn't we? We'd eat less, we'd eat better, we would exercise, we would not get so stressed and worry about things because they're all detrimental to these bodies that are sacred. It's funny, people pre treat Bibles sometimes as sacred. You say, oh, you got to be really careful with this book. <laughs> well, well <laughs> the content may be sacred, but the pages in the, in the book isn't. Oh, you can't throw a Bible away. <laughs> it's just pages and, and paper and so forth. And a lot of us do a lot of our Bible stuff online now. It's on a screen. It's not in hard copy. I didn't put this verse on the outline, but the next verse is really important too. So you, who have God dwelling in you, are bought with a high price. We might say the highest price. You are bought with the blood and the life and the sacrifice of God's only Son. There's no higher price that anybody could pay. So you must honor God with your bodies. You must treat your body as sacred. I try to think of an illustration. Most of us at some time in our life have rented. We lived in a rented property, apartment, house, or something, right? All right. You give them a security deposit in case you don't treat that property correctly. We'd say in this case, sacredly. And I don't know about you, but I was really careful. And I tried to leave it even better when I left because I wanted to get my security deposit back, right? So how much more... Since these bodies aren't ours, right? They were bought with a high price, so we're kind of renters. How much more should we honor God with our bodies? And again, not just physical exercise, but our thought life and sleep. We should sleep adequately and all these other things. So what are the implications of what Paul wrote here? Well, a couple of implications the sacred has been transferred. Used to be the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? That was the sacred. And they had sacred objects in there. So there were sacred objects, a sacred place. It was sacred geography, sacred building. Sometimes people treat this building as kind of weird, like it's something. <laughs> it's just a building. <clears throat> so there's no more sacred places, objects. And next slide. There are only what? Sacred people. So the person beside you is sacred. If you got somebody back at home didn't come, they're sacred. Parents or grandparents or children, grandchildren are sacred. Oh, what about people in prison? The murderers and the sex offenders. And the sex traffickers. They are God's creation. And Jesus died for them. That gives them more worth than anything in the universe. Gold, diamonds, whatever. Again, the verse we kind of started with this whole thing. I tell you. Next verse. Tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. Meaning Jesus, obviously, right? 
But I got to thinking about that. What about this then? What about you? What about me? Greater than the temple? So, the invitation went out to Jesus' followers was simply, what? Follow me? And it didn't change after the crucifixion and resurrection. His invitation is still, and we say it every Sunday morning, is to follow me. Not faith in faith, not faith in religion, not faith in beliefs, but because he proved himself faithful. And we will find true life, real life, meaning in life, purpose in life. No fear in life. No fear to live, no fear to die. Why would you not follow him? What cause could there be to resist that, to say no to that? The invitation to you is to me is to follow. Let's pray. Father God, uh, this temple thing is a little confusing to us, hard to understand. Hopefully uh, this teaching was helpful. But let's throw on the fact that we are now the temples. We are now where you dwell. We are the sacred things. We are the things that people should come to to see you. Now, church gatherings are important because there's a bunch of us here where people can come to see you. But it's not this building. It's not a cross on the wall. It's us. And I, I don't know about the rest of these folks, but I have mixed emotions about that, mixed feelings about that. Well, that's awesome, God, but I, shoo, I sure don't deserve it. I sure don't, don't live up to that. I don't treat this body often as sacred. And I would ask you to forgive me, forgive us. And I pray that we would follow. In Jesus' name, amen.